Big Blue is finally Big Red. Purple? Now what? Antitrust is all the fuss. Apps that overshare, PGP poison, and we talk DNS on tonight's Iron Sysadmin Podcast, episode 64. Good evening, folks, and welcome to episode 64 of the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and I'm joined tonight by Jason. That's me. That's um, you. I have bad news. What's uh, the... I apologize to all of the people out there. Um, I think I broke Twitter. Did you break Twitter? Like, just now. It doesn't work. Well, look, somebody broke Twitter earlier today, and there's a good chance I... that it just happened again. I... Uh... All I wanted to do was tell the world that Iron System was live and the Twitter's broke. So sorry about that. That was just too much to ask. Let me see what happens. It's something is technically wrong. Something. Yeah, that's exactly what happened earlier today. They uh, they did thank me for noticing though. So oh well, yeah, well make sure you tell them that you're welcome. Yeah, I can't because I can't tweet at them. It's broke. I don't know what I'm going to do now. Wow. Something, something is technically wrong. I don't, I don't, what do I do during a podcast when I can't tweet? I, I don't know. I really don't know what to tell you. Um, I can say that somebody at Twitter is having a bad day. <laughs> okay. Well, um, at any rate, <laughs> good evening, folks. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, I mean, th- this afternoon, like, Two, three o'clock. I noticed the same problem where Twitter was throwing that very uninformative message that something is horribly wrong, um, and it turned out that it was a lot of people affected. I, I haven't seen much about it in the news yet, though, so um, maybe no one's watching Twitter anymore. I uh, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I actually, I had no idea that um, there was an issue this afternoon. That's because you're so busy with that new job of yours. Yeah, I was head down, head, heads down learning something for once. Um, That's weird. And, uh, uh, yeah, I was on Twitter earlier, though, so I don't know. I, well, it was working for most of the day. It was like, Remlins, I don't know, 45 minutes somebody, or so where it wasn't working. Somebody left their mogwai up o- overnight and fed it. That's it. That's it. Totally it. Okay, so right. I guess we'll just get this show going then without without Twitter. I mean that is unfortunate. How will we, how will we tell the world? I don't know. Anyway, uh, I, don't know. I did. I did tweet. Um, I guess before it broke. <laughs> Maybe I'm the one breaking it. Maybe. Uh, Maybe. I was fiddling with Twitter when it broke last time. Now I tweeted and broke again. So maybe it's me. Yeah, so Down Detector seems to be starting to spike reports again that it's broke. Nice. <laughs> I'm gonna. It's gonna be so. So, <laughs> not not to delay the show much more, but uh, basically earlier today I was tinkering with 
a new uh, social app to tweet uh, about, you know, well, for Iron Sysadmin and for another project that I'm part of, to to send posts to Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. Not Instagram for Iron Sysadmin, but for my other project. And that's when Twitter broke. And the thing that I did last on Twitter was use that same app to <laughs> share that the show was going to go live. So it would be really funny... <laughs> If this app is somehow abusing poor Twitter, it's got to be coincidence, though. I hope it's coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look, if, if it's not and you're causing it, then uh, we'll just catch it here live when they come kick your door in. Yeah, right. Exactly. What are you doing to Twitter? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. So some interesting news broke this week. Uh, this particular article is from ZDNet. Um, the, uh, the, the red, the IBM Red Hat acquisition, did I say that the right way? IBM's buying Red Hat. We, we talked about this, uh, months ago when it first broke, um, on this show. Uh, well, it's, it's closed. IBM has closed the $34 billion Red Hat acquisition. And, uh, now it's time to live, to deliver according to the article. Um, the, the article is more or less just a placeholder because there's a billion articles about this. There's a billion people speculating things. Um, I tried to get information that was coming from reliable sources. Uh, one of the links that I included in the show notes is an actual video of the IBM CEO, right, CEO, and the Jim Whitehurst. Um, I, for the life of me, cannot remember the IBM CEO's name. She's a very nice lady. Jenny, <laughs> uh, Jenny Romady. That's it. That's it. Um, yeah, so um, it's it's a it's a an interesting watch. It's a relatively long video, um, but it's, it's linked in the show notes. Uh, it's basically the two of them talking about, uh, the, the direction that things are going and what is expected to happen to, uh, to Red Hat. Um, and the general, at least the, the message they're trying to send is that, uh, Red Hat will remain independent. They're not going to be like under the thumb of IBM. And, uh, the, the, the goal of the whole thing is so that IBM and Red Hat can work together to build um, better hybrid hybrid cloud platforms. Uh, there was some speculation early on that this was going to be like, oh, IBM wants, uh, wants Red Hat to fuel their own cloud offering because IBM does have a cloud offering. Uh, but that is not the message that they're sending. They're basically saying, yeah, it'd be great, you know, to draw people into IBM's cloud, but the whole goal here is to get IBM and Red Hat involved in the global cloud market. And that is basically hybrid cloud, um, you know, Red Hat's thing for the past several years has been, you know, any app anywhere, right? So if you build your app to run on Red Hat's platforms, you can run it in, in any cloud that you want to. And that's the same message that they sent during this little uh, uh, interview that I saw. So it sounds cool. Um, it sounds like Red Hat is about to get an influx of global scale. <laughs> And that can only be good, I think, for Red Hat, as long as they're able to keep their autonomy like everyone's saying they're going to be able to. So, Yeah, I mean, so uh, IBM bought uh, a security company. I um, can't remember the name of it. Something Force. Force something, whatever. Anyway, uh, our, our buddy works for them. You mean uh, the one Mog works for? Yeah, the one Sorry, Mog works for. I didn't want to say that out loud if you were trying to make that all like subversive, but I think he said that on the show when he was on. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but but my point, <laughs> like my X, point being that X Force Red or something they called. Yeah, X Force Red. Yeah. So so they bought um, X Force Red, and X Force Red has stayed largely autonomous at this yeah. point. So so I mean, it's possible. Um, IBM is not the uh, monolith uh, of of nonsense that it was years ago, where you know it acquired things, chewed it up, and spit it out in the same exact gray box that everything else IBM yeah. had. Yeah, they talked pretty extensively about this when I was at Summit Sorry. as well. Blue box. Blue box. Um, they talked pretty extensively about this when I was at Red Hat Summit as well. Um, and uh, Jim and Ginny, you said her name was, um, yeah. were on stage having a very similar discussion as to what is linked in the uh, the article um, or the in the show notes. Uh, I could probably look up that keynote and add it to the show notes if I can find it if I remember to do that by the end of the show. But it was a pretty good chat. Um, basically, they, they sent the same message then. So at the very least, they're being consistent with all this. So if it is a big lie, uh, at least they have all their facts straight. <laughs> so, and, and, I'm, and I'm seeing a, a, a related article here. Apparently, Satya was at the uh, summit as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine that, right? Freaking... What is he, CEO or whatever of Microsoft? CEO of Microsoft, yeah. Yeah, he's like on stage at Red Hat Summit. And that was a pretty good message too. With Yeah, with IBM and Red Hat. That's that's kind of insane. I know, it's like, what? (laughs) I I cannot process. Yeah, it's weird. It's like um, all of the, the infighting that we remember from back in the days, back in the 90s and, and uh, early 2000s between these these three, not so much Red Hat, but uh, IBM, Microsoft, uh, open source in general, which, of course, Red Hat was a big a big piece of. Um, yep. That's all kind of behind us now. So, I mean, that's kind of cool, right? Yeah, no, I, I, am, I am looking forward to uh, RHEL uh, 8.0 for AS400. <laughs> That would be hilarious. Rail on the AS400. Okay. So, yeah. Red Hat, IBM. Hopefully not a bad thing. Hopefully. Moving on to an article from CNBC. So, uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple will show up at a congressional antitrust hearing next week. And by next week, it means July 16th. Uh, Article's from July 9th. So... Um, only a couple days ago. But yeah, uh, this I basically threw in here because it's an interesting talking point. Um, uh, basically, if you haven't heard any of the news lately, um, there are folks in Washington, folks in the U.S. government, who are starting to think that tech giants like Google, Facebook, Amazon, uh, and Apple are becoming monopolies. Yeah, uh, by the way, if you're... If you haven't heard this news, can I come join you under whatever rock you're under? Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, personally, as as I've mentioned before, I don't listen to a whole lot of news. Um, I basically have a collection of of uh, uh, news shorts that play on my Google Home device in the morning, and that's about it. I don't really watch the news much else, except when I'm doing things like preparing for this show. Um, and even I heard about it. <laughs> so, yeah. if if, uh, if I heard about it, and I, I kind of purposely avoid news, um, you know. So it's it's I interesting. Have, I so have the a visitor behind me. Hang on a second. Oh well, I'm going to continue talking then. So 
I I think that this is interesting because the only other antitrust um, scenario I'm aware of is that that I guess maybe during my lifetime or uh, I mean well there was Microsoft so Microsoft sort of was under the antitrust gun for a little while uh, in the browser wars and then uh, prior to that it was the baby bells of AT and T and 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 uh, breaking all that up into the into the big um, uh, the big phone companies that that are out there now um, and that's becoming arguably an issue again as well as they start trying to pull themselves back together um, so you have things like the T-Mobile Sprint merger that are currently being sort of reviewed by the DOJ um, and and I'm not sure I don't know if they've they've actually ruled on the Sprint uh, T-Mobile merger yet and I remember hearing something about it but anyway so they're trying to kind of put the bells back together there um, but then you have these uh, the, on the tech side phones are on the tech side but this, this is more like pure tech pure tech um, where you have Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple and the interesting thing that I find about these guys is that they're going after them for antitrust but in a lot of cases they're, they're, they're so spread out on what they do um, that in some cases I'm not sure that innovation necessarily is something that could happen outside of that, if that makes sense. Right. So Google, Google sort of like owns the search domain right now. And I don't, I don't know how you break that up. Um, although I guess they did with the phone company, so they could probably do it with this, but that is, that is a tough one. Um, search is sort of monolithic though. Don't you think? Uh, well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, like search, search you, is a weird one. So, like in in the I I don't know all the details about when they broke up Bell uh, or broke up AT and T. Was it, it? Yeah, it was Bell. Was it Bell Telephone? Yeah, Bell Atlantic. Yeah, Bell Atlantic. I don't know. How, I don't know all the details of when they broke up Bell Atlantic, but um, I'd imagine that the easiest way to do that would be to isolate it by region or something, or isolate it by service or right. something. Search is a service, period, by itself. But but. Um, the Googles have a ton of other services that when you lump them all together, looks sort of like a monopoly, right? So they do, they do. And advertising is really the thing they make the money off of. Yeah. But I mean, search, search itself is a, is sort of a very special one where you can't really necessarily regionalize it because mm -hmm. I mean, it uses all of the data together. So how do you do that? Um, the advertising, maybe you could break up um, some of that. Well, you could and, you could peel those things off. Is the, the point? Yeah, and and the whole alphabet setup that they have, um, where they've they've have that parent company and they sort of split into little companies underneath it. Um, honestly, that when that happened, that was sort of at least I thought that was kind of a a move to prevent anything antitrust from coming through. Because they can point to that and say, look, they're different companies under one umbrella. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing when I said that about how you could peel those off. But you, you're right. They they did. I mean, there are a number of pieces beneath Alphabet, which search is one of and advertising is one of and Android is one of and mobile is one of, you know, and all these other services um, like YouTube. I don't know. is technically a Google property. It's like a an Alphabet property, I would think. 
right? I don't know. Um, well, I don't, Google I don't, is an alphabet property, so. That's what I mean. Google is an alphabet property. Right. So, so I, I guess, would that mean alphabet is the monopoly? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how this works. <laughs> I know it, nothing about weird. it. You have, you have Google that has, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of products. You right. have, you have, uh, you have Amazon that, um, has, I mean, you got AWS, you've got the Amazon store, um, and you've got, uh, like video and, and photos and, and music and maybe a handful of other smaller services that nobody uses. So they're, they're a little bit different. And then you have things like, I mean, Apple does all sorts of stuff. They're, they're mostly, they're kind of, I would make them akin to like Microsoft. And then you have Facebook. Facebook is a, is a, I definitely think there's, there's, and I'm, and I'm obviously biased against Facebook, but I definitely think there's a monopoly there. If you think about it, just by the fact that, um, two thirds of the world's population is on that platform. Yeah. But um, so the but thing that I, one I think is the easiest one to break up. How so? You could definitely regionalize that one. And, and if you regionalized it and federated it, you could very easily have a, a, you know, multiple companies running and sort of competing. So, competing and sort of have their own areas and they don't all have to be under, under one umbrella. The thing is, Facebook is in itself a service, an internet service, yes. a global service. Right. And regionalizing it kind of defeats the purpose. Uh, Maybe how many? Um, uh, I'm not on Facebook, but how many Facebook friends do you have outside the U.S.? Well, none because I don't speak any languages outside of English. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and, and uh, like there are definitely people that have Facebook friends across the world. Yeah. Um, what, yeah. I'm, what I'm saying is like, uh, uh, diaspora was a sort of federated. Yeah. Stock. And there's a uh, there's a couple uh, solutions that are like that. Uh, right. The, the, if, if they broke Facebook up and they were forced to do that, you could still have conversations and friends all over the world. You just don't. It's all. It's on multiple platforms, and each platform would be responsible for their own content, their own, you know, like their own rules and regulations for that content, etc. The, the thing that gets me. So the the difference between the situation that Bell was in all those years ago, and the situation that Facebook is in now is that Facebook, while you could argue is a almost requirement anymore, um, it's it's not a utility. No, it's not. But when you have two-thirds of the world on your platform and then you basically give the middle finger to everybody and say, hey, I'm going to create my own money, um, at that point, it's no longer... It's like the antitrust when it comes to Facebook, to me, um, looking at it, is not so much... Uh, we want to break this up because they're a monopoly. Um, I think this one is more personal. I think this is uh, more of a, um, we need to do something before Facebook becomes its own country and its own government. And, and you can argue that they've already yeah. done that. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that could be a valid, um, a valid concern, right? Because right. If they're going to come up with their own, uh, their own currency, which is, which has been, 
spoken about lately. Maybe you mentioned that while I was busy dealing with the child who came into the room. But nope. um, no, but yeah, the, they're they're talking about their own cryptocurrency, which I mean, talk about what talk about what sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> at least from from a privacy perspective from a uh oh no 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 you, you misunderstand facebook is all about privacy now did you not get the memo yeah right they're all about privacy I no no that. the zuck the zucks zuck came out with this big thing about how facebook is all about privacy yeah i don't believe it they're gonna, they're gonna do privacy you, all the thing. Do you believe it? <laughs> well, you said it, and I think I saw it on TV once. So yeah, I mean, oh, I, I mean, if it was on TV, it's on the internet. It was on, on the internet. internet. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, the other hand, um, the world is becoming more. Well, the world has become more and continues to be more global. Mm-hmm. And and if you look at it for, at that lens, then a global system like facebook actually makes sense um because it it allows for a club for potentially for a global platform um so you know from the other lens i think there's i think there actually is benefit to having i mean i i I think there's definitely things wrong with facebook but you know i don't touch it because of the privacy pieces but i think Overall, it could potentially be a better thing and good for the world at large. From a communication standpoint, sure. But I I feel like breaking that up lessens it. Like, it cheapens it a little bit. Maybe not cheapens it. it I guess if it's done well, it doesn't have to. But the, the yeah. whole point the whole point of breaking it up uh, would be to take ownership out of one person's hands, take control out of one person's hands, right? That's the whole reason for breaking up a, no- a monopoly, because that particular entity has too much control over a market or over a thing, right? And the right? and one thing that we are one thing that we're overlooking here is that we we're talking global. Um, this is the monopoly piece of it is a U.S. piece. Yeah. So, so the U.S. can break up the monopoly in the U S but they can't, they can't force their hand outside of that. So in theory, Facebook could remain global except for the U S where it has, you know, there's six Facebook companies cause that's what it got broken up into. Cause if you think about, um, when Bell Atlantic got broken up, those are all U S companies. It just got broken into multiple U S companies. So I, I, you know, I, I, the globalization piece of it doesn't isn't it should be a consideration, but I, you know I don't think there's any enforcement that the U.S. could do on that without buy-in from other countries. The thing I'm not sure about moving away from Facebook is how like Apple plays into this. Apple's big, and yeah, they make a lot of devices, but there's certainly competition. I I don't disagree. I was trying to stray away from the Apple because I don't want to be called the Apple fanboy. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, but, I'm just like looking at it from a fair perspective, right? Um, I don't have to have an iPhone. I don't have to have an Apple MacBook. I don't have to have an iPad. Right. I don't have to have an Apple Watch. There are competitive solutions to all of those things. And, and outside of the outside of the Apple phone arena, um, MacBooks aren't. I mean, Microsoft dominates 
in that, you know, by a yeah. large margin. So yeah. that's, yeah. So from like, close. from a hardware pers- perspective, you've got Dell, you've got Lenovo, you've got HP, you've got, I don't know, is Gateway yeah. still around? Um, from a phone perspective, you've got Android. I mean, you've got uh, Blackberry's gone now, isn't it? Or are they still around? Um, no, they sort of resurrected. At least last I heard, they resurrected, but they were running Android. So, like, uh, phone OS, the only thing you have is uh, is iOS. Yeah, Windows is no more, right? Right, Windows, Windows well, phone. Is. They Windows sort of phone. Themselves, but yeah. Yeah. Um, you've got iOS, you've got Android, and Huawei is making their own thing. Oh really? Because Apparently. of the because of the tariff problem, was, or because of the the, was, the blacklist thing? Yeah, well, they're not blacklisted anymore, so maybe that'll change. But that was supposedly a thing. Oh, interesting. So yeah, I mean, I I don't see where Apple fits in here. Yeah, they're a tech giant, but I I can't see them being seen as a monopoly. That doesn't make sense to me. I yeah, I don't I don't I'm not sure where that one comes in. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it's it's great if they want to. If they want to show up and uh, make a case and help support, you know, or I don't know, maybe they're not there to support. Maybe they're like, oh, yeah, those Google people, they're terrible. You've got to break them up. <laughs> maybe. Oh. So so I, it, there's aspects that I think that there needs to be more competition. And there's aspects that I think that, you know, for better or for worse, like global is OK. Or, you know, in the case of like search, like it sort of makes sense. Yeah, but again, like, how do you break up search? Um, I don't know. You I, can I, only, no, you do it like China does. You can only search things in China. Yeah, I, th- I think we've hit on an, an interesting point with the um, sort of internet, I don't know, citizenship uh, and Facebook being a facilitator for that, right? Like, the, the internet community is basically Facebook. I mean, I don't know that I'd 100% agree with that, but, I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah, I mean it's it's still it's still optional. I I think it'd be a lot cooler if it was like Facebook were a protocol or something like Facebook were a protocol. Right. So so like the, I think the thing that killed Bell Atlantic was communications was needed, and Bell was phones. They were the only. Yeah. They were literally the only way to communicate. Yeah. And I mean, if you're going to go down that road, um, can somebody please come in and do something about the horrible service that I have from my local providers here? I can have a slow ass DSL line or a not quite as slow, but still crappy cable modem. I'd like some more. Like competition would be great. Um, Those are more interesting to me than like, look, if people want to like throw their all their data at Facebook and Facebook wants to abuse the hell out of it, that's their problem. My problem with Facebook is when they're using data that that they're mining and I haven't given to them, right? Like this whole shadow profile thing. Yeah, like, yeah absolutely. Know, like Facebook that's... tracks me even though I don't have a Facebook account. Well, I mean, it's it's like the it's like the credit score debate. Did you ever give the the credit union or the credit uh, bureaus permission to keep track of of your financial prowess? No, right. <laughs> it's same deal, right? It's just that this is in a digital right. world and it's it's your life, not just your finances. Right. So, so. yeah. Yeah, so. but okay. um yeah, I think it'd be cool if if there were a social network that people could actually participate in that was decentralized. 
And I, I don't know yeah. if, if I mean, like... at, at the same time, I think like if it was decentralized, how I mean, Facebook is kind of a horrible, rotten gutter as it is. Um, if you decentralize, oh, yeah. how much worse could it get? <laughs> and I, I'm not sure I want to know the answer to that question. Well, that's what I mean, right? So, you know, the 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 backbone of a social network could be some kind of a protocol. And then, you know, nodes could check into it. But then you run into the exact same problem that things like Diaspora and what was the, there was, there were other, excuse me, I should say there are other protocols or other uh, services that do decentralized social networks. Yeah, you're talking like Mastodon. Well, yeah, but there was another one. um, I can't remember the name of it. It was like, it was an open source project that... You could get a client. There were a bunch of open source clients you could get. I can't remember the name of the dang protocol. But anyway, it was... Facebook style or Twitter style? um, It was neither. It was... Matrix? No. Like IRC type stuff? Like, it's... I don't know. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Anyway. Yeah, anyway, the the point is, the the bar to entry is too high, right? So, with uh, Diaspora... I stood up a pod, and even with the skill level that I have, it was a pain in the butt. Like, there's no way you could expect a general, like, average, everyday user who just wants to participate in this social network to stand up their own pod. You'd have to have people like me and like you, people who are skilled, set up their pods. And then at that point, all you've done is taken the problem and spread it out across a bunch of uh, amateurs. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely things that need to be handled. Like, if a pod goes down, what happens to the data? You know, if you decide yeah. you don't want to run a pod anymore, yeah, yeah. People, so, like, there's 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 distributed systems issues. But if but, if you yeah. were to take somebody like Facebook and say, "Sorry, Facebook, you're too big. We need to split you into a dozen different smaller corporations," and all those smaller corporations stand up their own little Facebooks, right? Right. Um, and then they talk to each other. The, the little Facebooks can all communicate with each other. Then you still have the service level that Facebook provides, but you have it a little less centralized, which could be a good thing. Maybe. Yeah, but then, then you get into, um, uh, again, this, you know, if you take the diaspora example and everybody starts running their own pods, mm-hmm. it's on, it's the onus of whoever's running the pod to do any sort of filtering, banning, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, it, so if you if you split up Facebook, you've got you know a dozen different Facebook entities that are that are doing things different ways. Sure, um, <clears throat> I think that's a good thing. Maybe, that might be okay. I think that's a good thing, right? And if it's not, so you you use the the the, the concept of of regionalizing them. I wouldn't say regionalize them so that like right. there's a Northeast U.S. Facebook that everybody right. in the Northeast well, I mean, U.S. has to use. It's more it's like internet. it's more like there's a dozen. Um, you know, different little Facebook pods or whatever you want to call them. And right. you get to pick whichever one you want based on feature set, based on filtering, based on content, based on, you know, like all your friends there. Maybe that has some, you know, like, I don't know. I'm just spitballing yeah, would, here, but I, it would definitely I think, be, it would definitely be interesting to see what the competition would be. Like, what are they going to compete on? So right. Facebook is free today, right? So mm-hmm. what, what free you, what you compete on <laughs> if you want to call it free <laughs> average person, as far as they're concerned, it it's doesn't free. cost them anything to go. No, to yeah, it I mean, costs you know your privacy. Right. But if, if that's the case, then you have, you know, 
12 different Facebooks and you have ones that are like, yep, we're going to sell your data to everybody and, and nobody wants to go there. And then you've got the one that's, you know, real tight and says like, we're going to, we're going to show shadow figures of you and nobody's going to know who you are. Right. And you know, like how do they make money? How do they, you know, how do these things survive? Yeah. I don't know. So I don't know. seems that's, like a good experiment. That's Let's another problem with the diaspora model is that it doesn't make money. Well, By the design. diaspora model, yeah, the diaspora model wasn't intended to make money. It was intended for right, right. Just, but uh, if it doesn't make money, what's the motivation to run it? Passion. I'm a nerd, and I want to run it. Right, passion. That's it. Right. That only gets yeah. you so far. I, I don't disagree. So, anyway, uh, we've we've talked about this enough. I think maybe we could have a whole episode about how we want to decentralize Facebook. But <laughs> I think we just did. <laughs> I think we did. <laughs> All okay, right. Speaking of uh, monopolies. Yes, moving on. Uh, this is an article from CNN. Um, I skimmed this, I have to admit, but I kind of understand what's going on here. Um, Android apps are harvesting your data even after you tell them not to, says this study. And I didn't read too much about who made, who participated, who, who ran the study or um, whatever, because I'm terrible at this, guys. Uh, but basically, the gist of the article is that even if you have, so you, you install an Android app, um, one of the cool things I always thought about Android when I was running Android was that when you installed an app, uh, you got to selectively turn on and off the various permissions. Uh, iPhone is caught up with that now. Um, and I thought that was great, right? So I get Facebook <laughs> on my phone and I don't want it to know my location, but I do want it to know, I don't know, just pick something, my contacts, whatever. I would never give Facebook permission to my contacts, but for the sake of argument, uh, right. I would turn off location, I would turn on contacts, and I would feel safe knowing that Facebook knows who I interact with, but they don't know where I am. Well, but little do you know. Little do I know. Background. And we don't know, I don't know specifically if Facebook is doing this, so. Yeah. Oh, no, no. That's just an example. And <laughs> go to hell at this point. Yeah. Um, so, App X, which you've told, yes, you can know my context, but you can't know my location has code in it that then asks other applications or gets information off of your SD card or monitors traffic mm -hmm. or does any of a dozen other things to figure out your location anyway. Yeah. So in the end it has your location. Yep. Even if you told it, you can't have that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the bottom line is if you have a device in your pocket, that's able to track you, and it stores that data anywhere, and you have an app on your phone who has access to, say, I don't know, the file system on your device, it can probably get your location data anyway. Which right. Kind of a problem. Right. And, and, and it, 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 like, again, it's doing it, uh, it, it, clearly, these apps are doing it in a, in a, an arguably immoral, unethical way. But a thing that they have permission right. to do. Um, like a thing that they have that's, no... That's, the, as far, that's a cop-out. Uh, well, hold on, hold on. A thing that they have no technical barrier against doing. Correct. That's what I meant by right. permission. They but, don't have but, my permission. Okay. <laughs> right. So, no, no. But, like, you're writing an app. You need the user's location. You say, oh, look, there's a location API. Mm -hmm. You say, I need your location. And you find out that a lot of people are disabling the location and you can't get it from the API. Yeah. 
right? So now you have a choice as oh, a developer. Well, you can I say, oh, well, that, that people don't want it, so I guess, you know, that sucks. I guess I can't have their or, location. Oh, well. Or you can, you, like, these developers are literally deciding yeah. through the customer, yeah. I'm going to so start mining everything yeah. I can on that phone to figure out their location. Yeah, yeah. They say something like, well, I know that Android stores this little text file that periodically pings itself and puts your location data in it. I'll just go read right. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is called unethical bullshit. No, I agree. I totally agree. That is, I, I like, I'm sorry. If you're a developer and I find out you're doing that, you're your apps, every single one of your apps will never be on my machine again. And if I find you, I'll kick you in the shins. <laughs> the polite way of putting it. I mean, that's ridiculous. It is. Um, it is. It is. I'm, I'm, and I know they're going after Google on this one. I want to see the same, uh, the same study done on Apple. I want to know if that's possible with Apple. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that it's not right. because they, they, they sandbox it and isolate the uh, file system as well. But but I'm curious. Like, well, is, I mean, Android is supposed to be sandboxing this stuff too. Uh, clearly they're not. If yeah. you can just Obviously. get anything you want off of the SD card. <laughs> Obviously. Well, that's a permission. Like on the, the, the there's a fundamental difference in the way that iPhone uh, accesses your file system versus Android. Android's basically a Linux kernel. I mean, you know that Um, any app that has permission to the file system can read the whole file system. Yeah. Okay. Like it's it's locked down permissions wise, the same way a Linux box would be. You're essentially like a user on a Linux box. But as you know, as a user on a Linux box, you can read a bunch of data. You just can't write to it. right? Right. So that's probably the sort of thing that they're doing to get around this. Yeah. yeah. And God help you if you've got your Android device rooted. (laughs) Well, look, if you root any device, Apple, Android, yeah. whatever. The game's like, over, guys. <laughs> you, you've, you've, you've chosen to disable certain yeah. protections. Yeah. So, um, you know, but it, honestly, I, you know, I want to see this same, the, I want to see the U.S. National Security, uh, it was NSA. I want to see NSA Science and Security Program do this. Jesus Christ, there's a lot of people. U.S. US Nationals. U.S. National Security Agency Science of Security Program, Department of Homeland Security, and the National Science Foundation. Wow. Among others. Um, that were the sponsors others. of this thing. Among I others wanna, that are too small to name, because yeah, when I you're wanna, listed I next to the NSA... <laughs> <laughs> I want to see this done against Apple, and I want to I know the results. I agree, and maybe it has been. Um, we should try to find out. I don't know how yeah, to find I, out, but yeah, I don't either. I mean, maybe it has been, and they went, "Oh, it doesn't happen." And they exactly, just that's what I mean. If, but that's news too. Like, they tell well, us. Like, well, I mean, when you're CNN business, the the lead is, "Oh, Android is horrible." Not, "Hey, I know, I know." Not, not Apple is happy. <laughs> so, um, if you're if you're working for the NSA uh, and you're listening, and I know you are, yeah, um, right? <laughs> we, we're interested in this as well. So, if you could. Uh, Put the report under a rock and blink the light three times, red, blue, green, at the third window from the left, so we know it's under the second rock. We'll go get the report. Is that obscure enough? That's neat. Or, I don't know, considering considering that the data of the Android study is public... (laughs) Just email uh, us. Just email it to us. Okay, I think we've beaten that horse to death. 
Uh, this one you added from Threat Post. You want to take it from there? Oh, yeah. PGP's broke. Okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> moving, okay. No, P PGP, okay. So let's clear the, the air on this right away. PGP works fine. PGP continues to be PGP. It signs things. It secures things. Everything's wonderful. Um, what's happening here is the... And I'm going to screw this up because this is uh, this is one of those like black magic things. Um, so, OpenPGP uses something called SKS. It's a synchronizing key servers, and it is used. It's basically a like a think of it as a cloud of key servers. Okay. And it's used for distributing keys all over the place. Now, is this a service related to the official PGP? Not. Uh, uh, I don't, it's open PGP. So it's, it's probably the, the GNU version. I thought that was GPG. Yeah. GNU privacy guard. I don't make the acronyms here. <laughs> um, everything's okay. PGP. So, Continue. so, I mean, they're, they're, they sort of work together, but anyway, the, the SKS servers have had a known vulnerability for, I think the guy, one of the developers said it was like known for like the last decade. Oh, awesome! But it's it's not a it's not something that's trivial to deal with, and basically it's that the SKS servers have an upper limit of the number of requests that they can handle. I think is what it is, um, and maybe it's a certain type of request. And somebody has decided, um, I'm just going to DOS attack that, and that has basically killed. The global SKS network. It's dead. Interesting. Uh, you can't use it. So um, one of the developers. Uh, the last week of June 2019, unknown actors deployed a certificate spamming attack against two yeah. high profile contributors of the open PGP community. Right. Yeah, Gil uh, Gilmore and Hansen. And, and basically, the two of them have said, stop using SKS. You don't need it. Yeah, it just makes things easier. So SKS is it, it works fine. SKS is not like a public key server, right? This is some um, other protocol. It is part. It's it's like a different. It's like a network of public key servers, I guess. Okay. And and what's funny is that I've been having problems with um, SKS for a while now, uh, with some of the stuff that I've been using, and I kind of just brushed it off as like eh, whatever. I'll just do it. That's because it's, it's because it's been DDoSed. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I, I basically have just disabled using it and gone other directions. Yeah. It's been fine. Um, I didn't know that there was a global problem with yeah. this whole thing. well, there you go. Um, so if you're using PGP or GPG or, you know, whatever, uh, SKS is broked, and it is not something that is going to be fixed anytime soon. And if it is something that you are, if you are a, uh, what do you say, high risk user, should stop using the key server network immediately. Hmm. Um, I don't know that I ever actively or knowingly used it. Yeah, I think uh, by default, when you try to verify a key, it just automatically hits that network. And, oh, and okay. Because um, the the way I see, I don't use GPG or PGP frequently anymore. Um, but when I was, I would basically tell it where the, the key server that we use, that we tell all of our users that use it to put their keys on. 
Uh, right. And that's where it would verify keys against, as far as I'm aware of. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, and it's using SKS this whole time, and I didn't know it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it, I think that was the default, to be honest. Could be. Um, Could be. Yeah, I, I had been taught when I first learned it to specify the key servers, mm-hmm. so I almost never use the defaults. I always specify what I'm doing. Um, okay. So maybe that's why I didn't. And the, the couple times that I used defaults, it always failed. So I just kind of figured it was. Well, now it'll fail because it's being DDoSed. So anyway, yeah, P- uh, PGP be broke. Makes uh, you wonder uh, what the what the motivation is to DDoS SKS. Um, just to prove a point, or is there like a real reason here? It, you know, it's hard to say. It could very well be that they are using that to exploit something completely different. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Cool. So, uh, in the realm of exploits and broken things, um, and uh, actually quite uh, quite pertinent to this particular podcast. Yeah. Did you, did yeah. Did you hear it was broken? I, I did. Is it really only on Mac? The problem? Uh, I heard uh, secondhand, uh, have not seen an article related to it, that the reason that Zoom decided to uh, go ahead with removing, to putting the fix out that they did is because Windows was involved as well. But uh-huh. I don't, I've not seen an article related What's, to right Mac. Mac anyway, isn't Mac not those enough? That <laughs> for those that don't know, yeah. there was a, a security researcher who contacted, who discovered a, a, uh, what he considered an exploit in Zoom. And contacted Zoom and said, hey, this be broke. You need to fix it um, about three months ago. So it's 90, 90 day, I think, for the disclosure, I think is the standard. I guess it depends and, on who's doing it. But yeah, yeah, there's there's a whole timeline. Uh, if you look around, it might even be linked in the article um, to this this guy's blog and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so the, the deal was that uh, there were two problems. Uh, one. Uh, if you got, if a web page presented a link to a Zoom meeting and you activated that link, Zoom would immediately launch and join you to that meeting. And your camera and your microphone would be on and you would immediately be broadcasting. Right. Um, which, we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Which sounds um, sounds nasty, but it's it's also not like you wouldn't know it's happening. Well, like, yeah, well, like the well, Zoom okay. client would start. I would assume the Zoom client would start up. It does. Yes. The the light on your camera would come on, assuming your camera has a light. Uh, yep. Yeah. So it's it's not like some weird. Right. It's it's simply that you've been like unexpectedly joined to a meeting, and your Correct. camera. If you have your client configured to do so, your camera would turn on automatically, and so would your mic. So, so the you can so you don't have to click on a link for this to happen. Um, if and, and the guy that that uh, did this proved showed that if you create an image tag in an HTML document, and that image tag links to a Zoom meeting, uh, when it goes to load the image, Zoom will start. So. Um, might as well talk about it now. Uh, but uh, this, this to me was a, this was very, very, very overblown. Yeah. Um, two reasons. One, uh, the client starts in front of you. It's, yeah. You, like 
unless you do unless there's another exploit involved i'm not aware of it doesn't start in the background and there's pretty good indication that something has gone crazy. Yeah, it's, that's the point I was just trying to make. You know, like you, yes. you and, see and the second, client start. There are indicators yeah. that all of a sudden your camera is on right. and you could turn and it second, off. Second, um, you, so that he, he tried to, he basically said in the, in the release that, and, and you can do this in the settings for the meeting, you can tell the client, to automatically show video and audio. And absolutely correct. If the client is set to allow video and audio. Right. So for instance, my client, I turned off video and audio on purpose um, because I saw them and said, that's stupid. I don't want that displaying unless I tell it to. Right. But you had to go and find that. Right. It. Like right. you, you were in the settings, yeah. you found it, you turned it off. Yeah. So, so, so I will I will concede that the defaults are that video and audio is on. Yeah. As as honestly as I would expect for any video app, because that's sort of what it's for. And your average user is going to be like, oh well, yeah. If I'm if I'm joining a Zoom right. meeting, the whole point is to have my video and audio working. So Correct. why would I turn that off? My problem with the um, with the way that he wrote it was that the insinuation in his write-up was that the meeting was overriding that and forcing the client to show video and audio. And that's not true. That hasn't been true for the four plus years that I've been using Zoom. Unless they changed something and I wasn't aware of it, ever since I've been using Zoom, I've been able to disable on the client side yeah. my audio and video from every single meeting. I couldn't ride that. I do believe that you can configure a Zoom meeting to not automatically turn on video and audio, or at least you're video. correct. Yes, but you uh, can't. But I don't think you can override it the other direction. Correct. You cannot. You cannot force it to override the client. Um, so that was the first piece of it. The second piece of it, I will completely agree, was um, ridiculous. So Zoom built a small web server that ran locally on a Mac. And the purpose of this web server, as best I can tell, um, was that the, was, I think it was just Safari. Um, there was some cores, uh, uh, cross origin request, I forget what core stands for, security thing, uh, cross origin request security, right? Is that what it is? I don't know. Anyway, there's a there's a, a web security thing, cores, uh, which is hard to wrap your brain around to begin with that would not allow certain uh, requests if they were going to external websites. Okay. And this web server, apparently because it was running on localhost would override that because it was like a built in in the web in the web server uh, or in the web browser rather. And so what this thing is, did was it would sit there and run. And then when it got a request to open a, uh, a zoom meeting, it would just like launch the zoom and off it would go. Um, oh, wow. So th this was a way to, for zoom to circumvent browser security. Yes. Yeah. That's creepy. <laughs> so, so to be fair, zoom is not the only one that has done this. Yeah. No, I, from, I can imagine from, they're probably from the reports that I've seen. Zoom is not the only one that has done this. The unique, well, 
potentially, I haven't tested any of the other ones, but the, the, the quote unquote unique piece of this is that when you uninstalled Zoom, it didn't uninstall the browser or the server rather. Okay. So that would continue running. So even after you uninstalled Zoom for however long you had the machine, you had a, a, a little web server running inside that would receive Zoom commands. <clears throat> and apparently, actually not even apparently, I know this for a fact, if you received a Zoom invite and you clicked on the link and didn't have Zoom installed, the reinstall server it. would automatically reinstall it for you. Yeah, that was what I heard originally when I heard about this this like local web server that was running, that that's what it was for. Right. I didn't know about the uh, cross-origin request security. Is that what it is? Yeah, Cor I think it... Uh, I don't know. Now i got to look it up. <laughs> what does Core stand for? You're going to find like three other things cross, like completely. Cross-origin requests... Uh, cross-origin resource sharing. Resource sharing. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we were close. We got the so, cross-origin part. It's 50%. Is this basically like code that's supposed to help protect against cross-site scripting? Uh, the core standard describes new HTTP headers which provide browsers a way to request remote URLs only when they have permission. So basically, so, yes. I think this is, you can, as a web server, say, I'm serving you this content. Oh, by the way, you're going to be allowed to get content from these other sources. Yeah. No one else. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's sort of a cross-site uh, right. CSRF prevention. Right. So then, you know, you, you have like that whole scandal from a while ago where advertisers were serving malicious ads that would pull yes. in remote malicious code. So this, this sounds like it'd be meant to try to help protect against that. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. And it and causes, is, it causes, uh, causes immense headaches when you're trying to troubleshoot things and you can't figure out how to get around cores. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's cause uh, you're not supposed to, but that's cause what you have to do is start your own wet, your own web server on localhost. No, I know what I think what you need to do is as long as you're running a third party advertising agency, the core stuff just doesn't apply. Uh, is that, that how it works? Anyway, um, I don't, so know if, the, I don't know if you're watching the chat, but we got a, we got a comment from Claywall. Oh, he did the cores, uh, uh, presentation at DC uh -huh. 610 this month. So he's at so, home like these guys are idiots. They didn't listen to my talk. Yeah, well, I no, I didn't. Sorry, you weren't I, there. I, I was, but I was busy helping Danny figure out how to how to stream stuff. I, I, all right, I'm going to the chat to see how stupid I am. Well, no, he's he just said cores relaxes same origin policy new in HTML5. Yes, yeah, I I mean yeah that okay that uh huh we kind of got it right yeah, um totally anyway <laughs> so so what was I talking about? uh the web server okay yeah. so all right so long story short zoom apparently released or alleged not allegedly zoom released an update last night last night whatever day it was last night or the night before that fixed all this oh good uninstall the web server everything's great and wonderful so how do they get around cores now uh they don't <laughs> um so now um now, now we'll talk about the actual article that I put into the. Oh, okay. So that was, all that of that, article. Yeah. all of that, and we have we're like an yeah. hour into the news at this point, by the way. I know. So, so, <laughs> so in addition, I just found out about this today, and it's kind. Of, I don't, I'm not. I'm kind of bothered by this, um, actually, 
Um, in addition to Zoom having fixed this and released a, a, an update for this, Apple also fixed this problem and issued an automatic update to Mac OS that just removed the server. Done. And wait, so article so Apple pushed an Apple. automatic update. Yes. Like an update that I didn't even have to approve or it would have come in like a normal update. Apple has issued a silent automatic update to Mac OS. Wait a second. Yeah, well. (laughs) That isn't cool. Well, I (laughs) they're they're using their power for good, but that's not cool. (laughs) Right. So this reminds me of, do you remember, um, hopefully you remember this one. So when the Kindle first came out, uh-huh, 1984. Out, yeah, people were exactly people were freaking out about how you could just automatically remove books. Yeah. And the first book they removed was 1984, which was just like you know, I that swear was, that that had to be a troll. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> that was not that was not accidental. And I didn't plan. <laughs> um so Apple has and, and now according to the article, Zoom worked with Apple to do this and said like hey, could, you know, like they work together and um, I guess there's 4 million users of Zoom. But so Zoom, Zoom is the company who put the, the web server there. Why couldn't they remove it? Because they their client... Oh, their client was already gone. No, no, their client doesn't auto-update. Well, there's that. Um, plus, their client doesn't auto-update. Okay, which is kind of silly. Uh, I don't disagree. They have a really weird update strategy. So some updates they alert you of. Like this one... Uh, an alert actually popped up in my my Zoom client that said, "You need to update." I, I was looking for it, but it, it popped up. Yeah. In other instances, there have been Zoom updates that are, you know, bug fixes or new features or whatever, and they don't bother popping up a thing that says, "Hey, there's an update." Um, so they they have a really weird update strategy. But anyway, Apple pushed an update silently, globally, that removed this. And I'm kind of bothered by that. Now, yeah. Microsoft does too. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> Microsoft has been known to do this as yeah, well. well so. that they're Microsoft. You expect them to do it. Why? Well, it is the thing. I just wouldn't expect it, that from Apple. That's all. I I don't know. And, and this is where you get into the, you know, this is where I said earlier, well, when we were talking before the show, you know, like this kind of relates to the whole antitrust thing. Like, I guess so. <laughs> that's, that's a little weird. So so that's the whole story in a nutshell. Uh, it's a very long story to get to a very short ending, but uh, Apple did a thing, and it's creepy. Apple did a thing that is questionable, but for a good reason. Yeah. Hmm. And now it's time to press the button. It is time to press the button. That may be a record for our longest news section. <laughs> I don't think so, actually. <laughs> that was a quite a long news section. Well, the, uh, it's, the, a, it's a good thing we don't have anything complicated to talk about in the main section. No, no. Well, <laughs> how complicated could it be? It's been around for how many years? Yeah, right, right. All right. So uh, I don't, I, I, I did, did I look? I can't remember now. Did I look for reviews? I don't think I did. 
I don't think we have any new reviews. Did your cool little review service tell us we have any reviews? No, it's kind of boring. It, either we either it sucks or we don't get reviews. One of the two. I don't think anybody reviews our I show. I believe that it sucks. Folks, go uh, go review our show so we know what we're doing right and wrong. I guess if you're quiet, we'll just assume we're doing everything right and we're awesome. And we'll just keep going on doing awesome. Right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Awesome. Awesome is the thing we do. Awesome. Okay. Uh, announcements. Oh, yeah. I skipped over that, uh, didn't I? Yeah, we did. Um, so there's two of them. Real quick, uh, the final DerbyCon, uh, DerbyCon finish line, is September 4th to the 8th, assuming that you're going to training. Um, uh, they announced the bands. Have you seen the announcement for the bands? I saw I saw the announcement for the main act Saturday, which will again be Infected Mushroom. Yes. That I've, is awesome. Time, I've been begging. The entire band. Oh, was it? It wasn't the entire band last time. That's right. Apparently not. So that that should be awesome. That yes, that'll that, be great. I've good. I've been kind of itching to see uh, Infected Mushroom again, and yes. I was hoping Dave would bring them back. Even though the only time he's repeated an act, uh, at least a main act, was with the Crystal Method because a number of us missed it the first time. Um, but Infected was so much of a better show. I'm so I'm so glad they're coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's gonna be great. Uh, and the other act is uh, Friday night is going to be Sublime. That's right. I did see that. I've never seen Sublime. I've I was never really a huge Sublime fan, um, but I will definitely go see that show. You know, so I skipped. I skipped the uh, what is it? Ice uh, vanilla ice. Vanilla ice. I skipped huh. the vanilla ice show. Last you shouldn't year. have. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, that's what I hear. It was uh, fun. So, so I'm definitely going to check out Sublime. It was, it was um, fun. Uh, Infected is really what I'm after, though. Oh, absolutely. Uh, of course, like the the con. As a whole, like I'm, I'm kind of stoked to see everybody and yeah, kind of it's going to be a wonderful time and and kind of sad at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's a little a little bittersweet. It'll it'll I, I'm sure it'll be a good time. Um, I hope our our uh, our friend who I'm not going to say on the air, but you know who I'm talking about, who said he's probably not going to make it this year. Hope he finds a way to make it. Um, just because I think he would be remiss. To miss out on the last DerbyCon, you look confused uh, as to who I'm talking are, about. Are we, are we talking about our uh, our, our our friend, our, our friend who works for a certain power company? Oh, that friend. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm cooking up uh, a scheme to get him there. Oh, so, good, good. Uh, uh, I may I may throw myself at the mercy of the uh, uh, better half. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. That's the way to do it. Guilt, I, mean, guilt I, tripping, I, I would I would term. miss I would miss our long conversations in the uh, on the the road trip to Louisville um political as they usually turn <laughs> if he didn't make it yeah well we're gonna have uh we're gonna have my young one with us this year so yeah I don't know interesting what <laughs> don't look too excited damn I, no no what i what i mean is i don't think he'll he'll be an adequate replacement uh conversationally uh you thinking. might actually be surprised um slightly different topics but you might be surprised yeah okay different topics might be okay i don't yeah. think i don't think i would like to converse with him on politics is what i'm getting at <laughs> Oh no! I don't think he'll be nearly as open-minded as the person I'm, I'm uh, referring to, or at least as um, 
um, agreeable to disagreement. How's that? <laughs> that works. So yeah, yeah. We'll we'll see if we can get them there. Um, so the other announcement is uh, B sides. Uh, we had a uh, a powwow last night uh, finally, and uh, uh, we've shook a couple things loose. Uh, the B sides Delaware this year will be somewhere. Uh, it'll be after Labor Day, I guess. I think was the note that I was given. Um, which is also the same time as DerbyCon. So after it, Labor Day, That's yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so like likely end of September, early October, I think is the target right now. Okay. Um, they're just getting to the point where they can sign the agreement. Can't you with guys? The can't you guys pick a set of dates and stick to them? Of course, DerbyCon's not anymore either. They used to be the end of September every year, and then they went to October. Now they're at the beginning of September. Yeah, well, so DerbyCon's was uh, the end of September, as long as they were at the Hyatt. Mm -hmm. And the moment they moved to the Marriott, it just exploded uh, all that. and it sort of went out of whack. Yeah. Uh, we we have had the same problem. So we were pretty consistent right until we changed venues. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, well, last year at our previous venue uh, was an issue because of the they were doing... Construction uh, or something. Something, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then this new venue, it's a little bit different. So we're hoping to get back to the end of September, early October time frame. Um, and I think we're going to be able to do it. So as soon as I have dates, I'll let everybody know. And uh, I've already gotten a couple of requests for CFPs uh, that people want to submit already. So um, I'll have to uh, see if I can think up another topic to, to talk about it. Yeah. Besides Delaware. This is, this is our 10 year. So oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, 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 whatever term is for that um i uh i submitted my uh so you want to start a podcast talk to DerbyCon. i don't know if that's going to get accepted or not it's not quite the usual um fodder for DerbyCon. might be a stable talk but um it's, it's kind of related though right i mean yeah, yeah sharing absolutely. sharing information is really like the point of a podcast right so yeah um yeah. I, that's I, I thought it might fit i figure what the hell it's the last year i might as well try <laughs> I was told that the the uh, uh, the confirmations are supposed to go out this week, but I haven't. I actually haven't seen anybody say that they've been accepted or not yet. Yeah, I wonder if they're running behind. So they always do. Um, my my again my my youngest spawn submitted uh, two talks to DerbyCon. Really, so he's for confirmation as well. He's up on. He's he's higher than me. I mean, I I feel like the days where unknowns can get accepted to DerbyCon talks to talks to DerbyCon is past. I hope not. I mean, I, it's it'd be the last awesome. Year, so it doesn't matter, but I hope not. It'd be awesome if, if he could get it, get a talk accepted. That would be a great thing. Um, I have spoken at DerbyCon, so have you. So um, yeah. it's not like I need a feather in my cap. I just thought it would be a fun thing to share. That's all. I already have a ticket because of Hack Your Derby, or at least I will. <clears throat> I've been assured that it's going to get accepted. Not that I thought it wouldn't. Um, so that'll be there. Yeah, and I've got, got mine through. I'm a volunteer, so yeah. I run part of the operation. So yeah. we'll uh, we'll be, we'll we'll both be there. Uh, you know, for those that care, we'll maybe we'll send out a tweet and have a, a little meetup. Yeah, absolutely. If uh, if anybody listening is going to be at DerbyCon, already has a ticket, uh, let us know. It'd be cool to meet up with some listeners. That is, listeners we don't already see frequently anyway. <laughs> Ah, we can meet those two, I guess. It I makes it look know. like a bigger crowd and we're more popular. Sure, sure. Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll say that I, I met, I, I saw Jerry Bell like 400 times last year, like just passing in the hallways and stuff. It's kind of fun. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of, I wonder if, uh, probably not. I guess I'm, I'm going to bet that Lurg is not going to be there. Yeah. Um, uh, well, he has some health issues, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I think he's not going to be there. Yeah. I, I kind of wish he was so we could just like wish him well. But yeah, I don't, uh, I don't really know the details, but we, we don't necessarily need to discuss them on the show, but we can talk about it later. Yeah. It's all on Twitter if you want to see it. Oh, uh, okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, well wishes to him. I'm glad he's still around. Is yeah, is probably the best way I can put it. Absolutely, so. absolutely. I've I've missed defensive security. They haven't been releasing shows probably because he's not well. Right. Jerry yeah, tried exactly. one on his own. It was still a good show, but it wasn't quite the same without. Well, without they had one um, last week or the week before that was him and him and Lark got together and and sort of did a hey, this is where we've been. Um, oh, okay. Were- that may be queued up in my uh, my podcast yeah. app, and I didn't see it yet. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm 24 hours deep in mine, so uh, <laughs> I feel your pain. <laughs> so anyway, I guess that covers announcements, huh? Yep, yep. Push the button. Push the button. No more chat. Yeah, I guess that's fine. We we've we've chatted enough, right? Here we go. Yes, yes. Push the button. Oddly enough, nobody responded to my sticker challenge from last uh, last show. You remember what the challenge was? Sticker challenge. You just said the phrase. No. Remember, remember, I said push the button, Frank. Push the button. Oh, right. oh. Okay. And, and I said yeah, if yeah. anybody could identify what that was from and let me let us know, I would send them a sticker. Well, nobody responded, so I guess no one gets a sticker. No, well, maybe. I mean, you know, we have those people in the chat. Maybe one of them knows. Yeah, maybe. Does anyone in the chat know what push the button Frank is from? No Googling. Because <laughs> <laughs> Googling's cheating. <laughs> is it though? Or is it, you know, using my Is it cash? it's resourcefulness. <laughs> no, it's use, it's using my cash. Using your cash. Okay. Your cash yeah, is a, the I had a cash miss and I have to request it from Google. Your cash is the wealth of all humanity's knowledge on the internet. That's your cash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't it be? Anyway, the main topic tonight is DNS. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, last last time around, we talked about SSH and hardening SSH. And um, I sort of have this idea that maybe uh, we'll cover some other services in a similar way. Uh, that's not necessarily what we're talking about tonight, although it could be. Um but uh, we basically, we're just kind of going back to basics on what DNS is, why it's important, uh, how it works, things like that. Um, so I don't know, Jason, you you may actually be a, in, an even deeper wealth of knowledge on this protocol and this service than I am, uh, because I know you've done a lot more work in uh, making it operate from the network side uh, than, than I have. So <clears throat> I will say, the at its base... Uh, DNS is the domain name system, domain name service. I don't know. Does that stand for domain system or service? Service. service. The service. domain name service. Um, and it is the way in which your browser, your computer, your whatever, uh, resolves names to IP addresses. Um, anyone listening to the show that doesn't know that, now you know. Um, I don't know if that's and, really and that. vice versa. Huh? Vice versa. Oh, and, res- and, and, and vice versa. Right. Right. Resolves. Although uh, that's, if, if you look at it, that's kind of a, Work around, sort of. Okay, 
Well, you can talk more about that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, basically, it's the thing that makes everything on the internet human readable. Not everything, but every address on the internet human readable. It's what turns YouTube.com into an IP address because that's how your computer actually connects to it. Um, again, this is a or this is a, a a podcast for sysadmins, and if you don't know that, um, you know we're being a little too uh, uh, <laughs> uh, high level here, I suppose. But um, if you didn't know it, hey, we're we're happy to talk about it. So I don't know, Jason, you want to take it from here? I don't know what you had I had had as an idea for where you wanted to go with this. Yeah. So um, I mean, the, uh, DNS is so back in the day. Um, if we go back to ARPANET days, um, and and I'm going to get my history wrong because I don't remember exactly the the order of things. But basically, the machines needed addresses. Um, so you had the MAC addresses of uh, Ethernet cards, um, although back then it wasn't. Again, I, I don't, I don't necessarily remember exactly what was what, but there, there was an address of some sort. And eventually, we came up with this whole idea of IP addresses. And IP addresses are simple enough when there's, you know, a dozen of them or two dozen of them, but at some point you can't remember all those numbers. Most people can't remember all those numbers. Yeah. So we've, we've all and, run, we've all run a small network at home or whatever, where it's like, ah, well, I can remember that my printer's address is 10.1.7.48. Um, that's easy enough. I don't need DNS for that. But when you've got a whole yeah, I mean, huge network of machines, it's a little, it's easier to remember my printer's name is desk jet. <laughs> then, uh, my printer's name is what was the IP again? Right. So, so, I mean, you know, I, I was able to, at, at various different places I worked, remember, you know, upwards of probably 100 or more IPs and what they did based on, but we, we had very strict uh, hierarchies of where things were and where the common things were and, and what, what, what IPs meant what, that sort of thing. Like dot one was the gateway. And so that was the router and dot two was the switch. So I mean, there were there were sort of cheating shortcuts to know what was what, um, but when you scale that up and you start have you know I don't know say an internet and there's millions of items on there, it becomes hard to remember what the addresses of things are, and addresses aren't necessarily meaningful. So if I tell you that uh, you can go right now to uh, 24.229.52.185, I think it is. Um, and you're going to see a thing. Uh, but that's not going to mean anything to you. But if I tell you that you can go to blog.godshell.com, that's a lot more meaningful. Right. Those, those words mean something. And DNS is a mechanism to take words... Uh, uh, in a hierarchy. So those dots are actually representative of a hierarchy and turn that into an address that can then be used to tunnel through the internet uh, or route through the internet and get to a destination. So at its heart, DNS is a way to sort of personalize those, those uh, very uninteresting uh, strings of numbers and turn it into something that you can remember. If that makes sense. Doesn't make sense at all. No, it makes total sense. 
Yeah, and then this gets even more important when you're talking about IP schemes outside of IPv4, like IPv6, where an address is, what, 64 characters? Or it's, uh, 128 bits. Yeah, 128 bits. And they're not just decimal, nope. right? They're hex. Nope. Yeah, no periods. Uh, it's all hex, and it's colons. So it's, uh, you know, like, uh, I don't know, 1, 2, colon, 7, 8, colon, A, yeah. A, B, colon, you know, 3F, colon, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it goes on and on and on and on. These these are huge strings of number of uh, hexadecimal digits. And then even and beyond, beyond that, DNS is a great way to mask things like load balancers, uh, you know, ranges of IPs that are serving the same service. You know, it's, it's very simple when you're saying blog.godshell.com resolves to one IP address. And if somebody can memorize that IP address, they'll likely get to that same site every time. Uh, but when you've got like a highly available system or when you've got a system that's in two or three different clouds and, you know, maybe it changes from time to time or, you know, maybe you're just changing providers or whatever, or you've got some sort of elastic uh, system, um, that IP address that it resolves to could change at any moment. Yeah, so we've 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 developed a lot of um, cool magic tricks over the years yeah. on how to use things like DNS. For instance, um, you know, typically you think of DNS as a, a one-to-one. Um, so I say, you know, example.com, and at the other end you get you know ten dot one dot two dot three. But I could also say example.com, and you get multiple IP addresses. Right. And the idea that it round robins through them. Uh, I could also say example.com and you get uh, a return of what's called a C name record, which is a, it's a canonical name record, which is, uh, uh, if you think in a, like a programming language, it's a pointer. Mm-hmm. So example.com points at uh, other example.com. So you end up sort of, and then you have to do another lookup to say, well, what is other example.com? Right. And then an address for that. And, right. and that can go, you know. So like uh, www.ironsysadmin.com could be a C name for ironsysadmin.com because they both go to the same place because they're both the same right. site. Right. And and C names are, are interesting because it actually slows things down. So it's convenient because right. now you have, if you ever update the IP address of the thing that is at the root of the C name, it automatically updates the C name. Right. However, every time you look up a C name, you also have to look up what it points at. Yeah. And if that's a C name, you have to look up what that points at. And yeah. it just goes. And they're they're all separate queries. If it's just two levels right. deep, it, you don't really notice it. But when it's three or four levels deep, you kind of have a problem. Maybe not a problem, yeah. but you have a delay. Yep. So so you've got uh, names pointing at names. You've got names pointing at multiple addresses. Uh, you have special records such as MX. MX yep. is a mail exchanger record. Uh, the the purpose behind this is that if you have a let's take example.com again. Uh, if you have example.com and you have a, a a record in there pointing at the website one dot two dot three dot four, and you want to receive mail at user at example.com. 1.2.3.4, which is your web server, hopefully, isn't your mail server as well. Right. Now, there there were, there was a day when it was expected that it would be. 
Yes. Way back when. Uh, but then they, you know, they, they realized with scale and security and everything else that it didn't need to be. The MX record, what that does is points at what is the mail server. Yeah, so it, so, it used to be if, if I were trying to send an email to jason at example.com and there was no MX record, it would just say, okay, example.com is at, you know, whatever IP the website for example.com is, and it would try to send mail there. The MX right. record was added later, I believe it was added later, as a way of separating the two. So you could say, yeah, example.com's website is over there, but the mail is over there. Yeah, uh, I think this was added as part of an RFC. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not positive on that. Uh, at any rate, there, so there's, there's some trickery inside of the MX record as well. Um, so there's this field called priority. Mm-hmm. You can identify multiple priorities with the low, lowest one being the first one chosen. And I mean, and priority can be set on most records. Like you could have www.example.com. You could have three three records for that, and one with a lower priority, and it would do it would act the same way as you're describing. That would be tried first, and then the the lower priority or higher priorities would would be tried other times. You look confused yeah. as though I'm I'm wrong, but I'm yeah. pretty sure I'm can right. You have a, can you have a priority on an A record? I believe so. Uh, that one I'm not positive about. Anyway, MX records can have a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that the, the, the top priority, um, target for an MX record is always a name and that name has to resolve. So you get, uh, I want to send mail to example.com. Oh, the MX record points at mail.example.com. Okay. I need the address for mail.example.com. You get that address. You try to go to that address. If for some reason you can't send mail there, the uh, the mail server may say, "Okay, give me another address for mail.example or for example.com," and maybe you get mail two, and then it'll look that up. So I mean, it goes through like this this recursive uh, test trying to find out which record to go to, and eventually you end up with one. Hopefully, end up with one that that receives that. So those are MX records. Uh, you also have uh, there's some weird ones like serve records. Uh, SRV records, which are uh, service records. And they're the idea behind those. My understanding of the idea behind those is that they are sort of uh, so MX record was very specific to mail servers. And they they realized that after MX records came out, they can't create a new record type for every single service that exists out there. Right. So if we came out, if they came out with a generic serve record type yep cover all of them so a service record identifies uh, i believe it identifies the uh uh the port as well um yeah. so you get the like there's a very specific uh uh list of information that's in there so you get the, the service the protocol the name of the service and you'll the, in return you'll get the port of the service uh, as well as the um, the name, the the DNS name of the service that you're trying to get to. Yeah, and a, a common use for this is like auto discovery. Uh, so right. like uh, Windows Active Directory domains have a lot of SRV records that help tell it where the domain controller is and where the LDAP server is, or you know whatever they call LDAP in the Active yeah. Directory world. Uh, same thing with Kerberos. Same thing with um, Free IPA or Red Hat's IDM. There's a lot of server records that make all that stuff work. Right. A lot of black magic in the background. And uh, like VoIP services, there's a ton of SRV records that go into 
you know, where is the, you know, the, the, where are the various services that make my VoIP system work? Right. Um, there are uh, a ton of other service, uh, a ton of other resource record types. Um, you know, A records are the IPs. That's the, the DNS name to the IP. And then quad A for IPv4 or IPv6, right? IPv6, yep. Quad A records are for IPv6. Uh, we talked about CNAME. We talked about MX. We talked about SRV. Uh, there's some, there's, there's two records that are sort of related to, uh, the domain itself, as far as like sort of the, the housekeeping for the domain. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of them is the SOA records, the start of authority. Yep. Uh, and basically that sort of lays out, um, uh, they call it authoritative information for the, for the zone. Like the TTL for the the zone and the serial number. the name of the primary name server, yep. the email address of the administrator, yep. the serial number of the zone. So every time you update a, a DNS record, that serial number has to change. It always has to increment. Yeah, that's basically how other name servers realize there's been an update to that zone. Right. So if right. ironsysadmin.com adds a new DNS record for like, I don't know, slack.ironsysadmin.com, um, then the the serial number gets updated so that other name servers, which I guess we can talk about how all this operates later, other name servers will know that uh, there's been a new record added or a change to a record on that zone. Right. Uh, and then there's uh, NS records, which are, um, so for, give, for a given domain or zone, uh, the NS records identify the authoritative name servers for that zone. So they're responsible for giving you an authoritative, like, I can tell you that this, this A record corresponds to this IP address. Um, there's also, um, there's text records. That's the other one that's uh, fairly common, TXT records, which are exactly what you would think. You put in a DNS name of whatever, and you get you just get text as the return. This is commonly used for uh, things like crypto, um, uh, things like uh, verification, which also tends to be some sort of cryptographic uh, uh, blob of text that you're using. Yeah. So Uh, like, like commonly like, Oh, I'm, I'm adding a domain to Google apps or something. They'll say, okay, create this text record in your domain to prove that you own the domain, that sort of thing. Right. And that, and the value of that text record is some crazy UUID yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, it's also used for anti-spam records such as uh, SPF, yep. spam, et cetera. But it, um, it could also just be used because you want to make a note of something. Yeah. I mean, text records could, you could put a text record in that says hello world. I mean, <laughs> like, like you, you could, if, I mean, argue argue one way or the other whether this is a good practice or not but you could say like you can add a text record to a host that says like this is my database server yes you know just so that you can look it up later obviously then anyone on the internet can say what's the text record for you know server x.xyz.com and they'll say this is my database server and then they'll be like oh i can attack that and get database right (laughs) so so there that's those are the those are pretty much the common ones um there are uh, uh, apparently a lot more d- 
DNS records than I realized, uh, different resource types. Oh, there's a million uh, so of them. There's, there's a couple of them for uh, what's called DNSSEC, which we're not going to cover because uh, I'm... Uh, I, we do. Neither of us know enough about it to speak about it, uh, and I think it's stupid to begin with. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we're not going to cover that one. Um, and uh, there's there's a lot of DNS record types that are apparently uh, expired as well. Like uh, there used to be uh, X25 records um, for presumably for X25 addresses. Um, there is a special workaround, if you will. Um, so DNS is entirely designed around taking a uh, alphanumeric string separated by periods denoting a hierarchy and turning it into an IP address. Um, and at some point, I don't know if it was immediate or somewhere after they initially designed this, they realized that uh, wouldn't it be great if we could give you an IP address and you could tell us what the DNS entry was for it, uh, which is called a, re a reverse record. So a reverse PTR. records are also a records, uh, and they are in a special domain called InAdder ARPA. Uh, I think it's internet address and then ARPA, presumably for ARPANET. Um, yeah. So, so th there's a special, like, we, we can probably provide documentation pretty easily on this. But when you look up a uh, an IP address, it automatically tags the end of it with dot uh, IP ARPA adder on the end of it, and then does a normal DNS lookup. And then you, you end up with whatever the result is. There's a, because you have four, uh, four potential uh, records that it could match, there's a hierarchy that it goes through to try to match each one of those individually um, to find the, the correct zone to match them in, uh, starting with the most specific. To, or, I'm sorry, there's three that it goes through. Most specific, least specific to, to figure it out. Right. So, and those records are actually defined usually backwards. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Which is kind of confusing yeah. when you're first looking at, like, how do it I do does, this stuff? It does get confusing. Yeah, you're um, like, wait, what? Huh? <laughs> yeah, so, so in other words, to, to explain, if I was looking up uh, 10.20.30.40, um, it might, the first thing it's going to look up is it's going to look up the entry for 40 in the 30.20.10.in adder ARPA record. Right. Then it's going to look up for, look, it's going to look up 40.30. In the twenty dot ten dot inadder dot arpa, record. right, and and then finally to the last one, right. So uh, you so you, you might have a you might have a zone that is what thirty dot twenty dot ten dot in dot adder dot arpa, um, and then inside of it you'll have records that look like one, and then it sh has the host name for what would have been ten dot twenty dot thirty dot one, two would be you know ten dot twenty dot thirty dot two, right. Yeah, these are these are pretty straightforward. You can have a maximum, excluding the name server, uh, excluding anything other than a records. You can have a maximum of two hundred and fifty-five addresses in that. Right. Um, is there's only two hundred fifty-five numbers? Unless you define your zone as twenty dot ten instead of thirty dot twenty dot ten. 
Right. Then, in which then case, the, yeah, you, you would define the, records like 1.30, 2.30, 3.30, right? Right. This all gets confusing, and it's a lot easier yeah, if, if you have something to look at to compare. But yeah, we don't uh, don't have that in front of us. So, uh, so that that's I mean that's sort of the the kind of general aspect of it. Um, yeah, when... so there's there's lots of like neat uses for DNS as well. Like um, mail systems use RBL blacklists, remote blacklists which are basically DNS zones that include a whole bunch of IP addresses. And I, are they text records or are they, I, don't, I never really dug that deeply into them. Uh, I don't remember. It's been a very long time since I've done that. I right. don't think so though. I think it's, I think it's a, uh, I think it's an A record. Right. So the way, the way these block lists work is like uh, an incoming SMTP connection occurs and then your SMTP daemon has a shim in there that says, oh, I'm supposed to check it against this blacklist first. And then it does a DNS query against that blacklist. And if it returns, then says like, yep, that IP's in my blacklist, then it drops it, right? So that's an interesting way to manage a blacklist, right? So. Yeah, I mean, there's, so DNS is pretty versatile. So you think of, of uses like that, you've got the uses of looking up uh, domain names, turning them to IP addresses to be able to get to things, which happens, you know, uh, I would assume trillions or more times per day. Um, and then there's interesting uses. Um, so, you know, we have some viewers that are very familiar with this at the moment. Um, you can, um, <laughs> you can store data in text records. Uh, and this is this is a this is this this goes right into the wacky. So there is a, if you gain access to a uh, let's say a, you break into some server and you have a shell account and you need to transfer data to that shell account and you know that most likely things are being monitored. You could take a an exploit of some sort, some binary file, convert it to base64 encoded text, stuff it in text records in DNS, and then do a series of DNS lookups on the server you just compromised and rebuild that binary yep. out of DNS. Yep. And and then there's no actual file transfers, it's a bunch of DNS lookups, which are usually allowed at the firewall yeah. level. And in the in the other direction, so I mean, it's worth describing a little bit at least about how DNS lookups work, right? So yep. when I when I'm on my machine and I say, "What's the DNS record for blog.godshell.com?" Um, my machine will be configured to look at a name server, which is generally just a caching server, right? That thing, uh, stub, stub server, actually, typically you from mean a local. house. Yeah, your local machine. Looks at us. So your router on your right. you know, cable modem, DSL, whatever, is a stub server. Right. Uh, it doesn't usually cache anything. It's entirely there to push that that request along to something else. Right. Which will go on to whatever its configured name servers are, which is kind of the right. same. Right. Is, so there will there will be a DNS cache somewhere. Usually at your ISP or your employer or whatever. Whoever manages your network will probably run a cache name server. You can use Google's caching name servers. You can use other public caching name servers. Um, and then all those things do is they interface with the 
the, the network of DNS servers on the internet by saying, okay, I've been asked for blog.godshell.com. I will ask the, and correct me if I'm wrong in the way this goes, um, I will ask the DNS root servers who yep. is authoritative DNS for blog for godshell.com. Or I, I guess it would go to .com first, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. It'd be like com and then godshell.com. And then right. it would say, okay, that guy named Jason, he's got a DNS server of his own where he puts all of his it records. Doesn't know my name. Doesn't know your name. Well, it might from the, from your who is record, which is a whole other thing we could talk about. Um, it would then basically say, okay, caching name server, go talk to you know dns1.godshell.com or whatever the hell you're calling your name server, um, yep. and then that'll get the actual record. The caching name server, and this is where the cache comes in, will say, okay, what is the time to live on that record? Let's just say it's a day because that's common. For one day, I will keep the record for blog.godshell.com in my own lookup table. And whenever someone asks me for blog.godshell.com, I will simply return it. I won't go ask again. I won't check the root servers. I won't check blog. I won't shell, check dns.godshell.com. I'll just tell you the address that I got. After, purely purely is a shortcut for speed. Right. After 24 hours, if you ask me for it again, I'll go through this whole procedure again, which is why TTL right. exists. Yep. Um, I told you all that to say, um, if I want to exfiltrate data, what I can do is I'm the guy that controls dns.godshell.com in this example, or you're the guy that controls it. Yep. Um, you can set up query logging on your name server, or you can just make a name server that doesn't actually return any queries. It just simply takes any requests that come in and logs them. Yep. I compromise a server, say it's a database server. I do this ridiculously huge select statement that gets me all the data and I put it into a buffer and then, I don't know, 64 bytes or whatever at a time, I take the data and I put it into a DNS query for something.godshell.com, right? And I just stuff all that data into there. And then the dns.godshell.com gets that request and it says, okay, the first 64 characters of this request isn't really a request. It's the data I'm exfiltrating and I put that into a right. file, right? Yep. And then I just sequentially dump that all into a file and presuming all of that data has made it through the queries, no smart system administrator noticed it and stopped it, um, you'll end up with all the data on the DNS server or the server, right? This machine you've set up that's only there to receive all this data. So there's some crafty stuff you can get done uh, as an attacker um, on, a, on a compromised machine simply using DNS queries. Because we just outlined two different ways that you can do that. <laughs> two different right. attack this is, uh, vectors this is here. All because DNS is absolutely critical. Critical. Yeah. So not only is DNS almost every operation. Not only is DNS absolutely critical, it is for the most part trusted as innocuous. Yep. Right? Oh, it's just DNS queries. It's fine. Why is it looking up a 64 character string? Ah, oh, it must be some cloud service that's using this weird key to blah de blah. blah. Yeah. Not, not realizing that that data that's coming out is like base 64 encoded your database data <laughs> or right. whatever, you know, encrypted right. in some way. Yep. So, so let's talk about a little bit of the issues with DNS. I mean, obviously one of the issues is that everybody trusts it because, well, it's just DNS data. If you don't have that, things don't work. Um, the process that you talked about for resolving, uh, which is 
what you call when you look up a DNS address, mm -hmm. uh, the process for resolving an address of going to the stub resolver and then going to the caching resolver and then going through this whole process of asking the root and then the, you know, that takes time. And what they found is that what attackers found or somebody found um, is that if you can respond faster than that process finishes, the first response wins. This is called a DNS caching or DNS poisoning attack. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, I'm sitting on my server and I go, hey, what's the address for Google.com? And my computer says, I don't know, I'll find out. Hang on. And it goes out and says, hey, what's the address for Google.com? If I, as an attacker, know that you're going to look that up eventually, I can be basically flooding you with responses. Hey, the answer is my bad address. The answer is my bad address. And if the moment that you ask that, I'm able to get a response in before the official response comes in, first response wins. So now... Because why wouldn't it? Right. Now... <laughs> Your machine says, oh, Google.com is bad address over bad address over there. Okay, cool. Let's go there. And that is a that is a, a poisoning attack. So uh, I don't I don't want to go too far down the DNSSEC rabbit hole, but isn't this what DNSSEC is supposed to prevent? No. No? No. To my knowledge, that's no, not necessarily. There's a not necessarily in there. So a stub resolver is not smart enough to know what DNSSEC is and believes everything it's being told. Mm. So a stub resolver automatically just says, oh, that's the address? Cool, we're good, and moves so, on. So what if instead of using a stub resolver, I'm talking directly to a full-blown DNS cache? So if you have a caching resolver that is DNSSEC aware, um, and this is where my knowledge is going to get a little shaky, um, my understanding is that the the way that DNSSEC works is that it starts at the root. The root has a has a an entry that says that the uh, you know dot com is signed, and dot com has an entry that says that godshell.com is signed, and godshell.com says an entry that says that blog.godshell.com is, is signed, and DNS poisoning doesn't work in that respect because if you try to insert a blog.godshell.com response and your cache knows that com is signed it's it it, it doesn't like it, it doesn't match like hey this should be signed and it's not and something's wrong um there's there i think there's a tax my understanding is there's a tax around that where you can still inject things if you're fast enough and and be able to take that over and this is sort of the problem that I have with DNSSEC is you're protecting the records. You're protecting the integrity of the records. So nobody can ever accuse you of having put in the wrong record in your DNS server. Completely agree. But because the communication channel between you and every other DNS server in the world is completely unencrypted, you can never guarantee that the person responding to you is authoritative. So basically, like, authoritative is like, hey, I'm authoritative. Cool. All right, I believe you. So 
it solves part of the problem, but not all of it. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, I'm, a, I'm of the opinion that transport security trumps uh, uh, the security of the records themselves. I think if we had transport security in place, we'd be in a much better place today. Uh, because we went the other way and said record security first and transport security second, I think that that's an issue. I mean, the other problem with all of this is that, you know, at the end of the day, my local router in my house is never going to support transport security because it's too expensive. Yeah. It, that thing needs to encrypt. <laughs> Forget that. Something else needs to do that. I mean, as CPUs get faster and cheaper, I mean, we already, we already see this, you know, today with uh, some of the protocols that were designed so many years ago um, that were designed for efficiency. The efficiency isn't as necessary anymore because the CPUs that are that are crunching on that are, are sufficiently advanced, right? Right. I, I don't disagree, but I think that those CPUs that can do transport security on DNS exist today. I, th- I, 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 I not even think, I know... I could build, if it was ubiquitous, I could build a router today that every single packet, without the without any application involved at all, every single packet that went over the wire was encrypted with no loss in speed and latency at all. The, the chips exist already, but they don't make it into consumer goods because nobody cares. Nobody really looks at that. Yeah, no universal standard for it. So if I if I built an encrypted router today, I couldn't talk to anything. I mean, that's that's the other problem is that there's, you know, the fallback piece is kind of an issue. But, um, you know, the stub resolver not having any sort of encryption is a a major problem. Um, And I think that's the attack vector. I mean, if I wanted and we saw that with. uh, uh, Back in. February, March, I think, when there was a big to-do with a bunch of domains that got attacked. Um, Some of them were attacked where the credentials on the domain were hijacked and they ended up adding or changing records. And, of course, the domain provider is the one that signed the domain. So the DNSSEC records were perfect because it just signed them. Um and in that attack, if I if I remember correctly, some of the people that were attacked, it was basically their stub resolvers that were that were sort of taken over. And anything that goes in there is going to be believed because there's no intelligence there. Or no no reasonable intelligence to identify a fraud. So so that I mean that, that there's a there's a huge weakness in DNS. And there's been a there's been sort of a I don't know how big the movement is, but I know that at least some of the people that I follow that I've I've seen in the in the DNS arena have talked about getting rid of DNS entirely because it doesn't, you know, at this point in time, like what's your DNS today? If you want to go find, um, let's say you need a new strut for your Jeep. How do you find that website? I mean, I guess that would depend, like if I'm thinking far enough into where I think you're going with this, 
uh, I guess the first thing you, the average person would do is go to a Google search. Okay, so why does DNS matter? Well, DNS would matter if you're like, oh, well, I'm going to go to the website of my favorite auto parts dealer and just right. type that into the URL bar. Right, which also works in search. For the most part. If I go to search and I type, you know, famous auto parts dealer, it's going to yeah, pop up. Yeah, but it's so there, for the... I'm not saying there's not problems with it. Yeah, for the end user, that works fine. Yes. You know, for the average person who's just browsing the internet, yeah, that's great. Um, but it's not fine for, you know, mail server needs to find the MX record of the destination server. Right. It, it doesn't like work. I said, there's there's yeah. definitely issues with it. But. It's it's an interesting start. And I know, uh, isn't Firefox deploying some sort of a DNS over HTTPS um, protocol yeah, so in that, an upcoming that browser? I find, yeah, that I find interesting because the DNS over HTTPS covers the transport security, which I yeah. think it and is to me that is the biggest target. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of pushback on that. Um uh I, I, I admit I haven't dug deep into why. Um but uh uh there is a there's a a debate on whether DNS over HTTPS is good or bad. Uh the one or two DNSSEC purists that I've talked to hate it with a passion, but purists usually end up hating things with a passion anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, in, in, you're always going to find that. Uh, you're also yeah. going to find people that just don't like change. DNS has right. worked fine exactly. for 40 years. <laughs> Get your hands out of my DNS. Right. So, so I mean, it, there's still things to be done, and, and it's still evolving, and I think it'll evolve for, well, you know, as long as the internet exists. Um but it's it's uh it's definitely a backbone. If DNS goes away, uh, you know that's pretty much the end of the world for most applications. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the point is, and this is a much broader point than just DNS. Um, there there are protocols in use today on the internet that were designed when the internet was still a new thing. <coughs> IPv4. <coughs> and I mean, awesome that they have scaled and they have proven to be stable protocols for so long. The problem is each and every one of them has flaws, like the things we've just outlined with DNS. DNS is yeah. a very old protocol. Everything has flaws. And there are certain there are certain flaws that are hard to fix without a full-on re-implementation. We see this with mail, right? I mean, I, I spent the past 10 years of my career, longer than that, running mail servers. And right. there, there are flaws in the SMTP protocol that make it really easy for spammers to circumvent things, to, to pretend they are someone they're not, to, to send mail looking like it came from someone else, to, to fish people. Um, and there, are, there have been all these little things bolted on to try to help stop these things. But the bottom line is there's a core problem with the protocol. And it's, it's impossible to fix without a complete re-implementation. Now... As we're shifting to things like cloud providers for mail, right? So the 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 uh, self-hosted mail situation is slowly dwindling. It could be twenty years before the last fully self-hosted mail server goes away. But once yeah, never go away. Once the Gmails and the Microsofts and the the AWSs are controlling all of the flow of mail they can start making core changes to the way the protocol works 
to help mitigate that stuff, right? right? And then and then the people like Jason who are still running their own mail uh, will have to either keep up or they won't be able to run their mail anymore. And people will complain, but the point will be enough of the email infrastructure no longer depends on administrators like me and Jason uh, that the Gmails and the Amazons and the whoever's of the world can simply make changes to the protocol so that it works in a more secure way. Or maybe we just stop using mail. I don't know if that's going to happen soon, but uh, there are so many other ways that we communicate. I know a lot of communication is moving away from email and into things like Slack or into things right. like social or into things like SMS, which is not a step forward, <laughs> but it's there. Um, but my point is the protocol may simply die out. DNS is not a thing that's going to die out unless we take efforts to replace it with something better. Right. So, and, and, and if anything, um, DNS is almost becoming more important. Uh, so, you know, we, we've talked before about uh, containers and, mm -hmm. and DevOps and, and how things are working. Um, so the, the networks of today are incredibly dynamic. At any given time, in you know any network that is is at all even close to current standards i i'd be hard pressed to tell you what the ip address of any specific service is all of that dynamically changes using dns yeah um, yeah because god because all of that is now containerized or in a cloud service or I mean half the time especially if you're talking about a cloud provider you might not even know what address your service is running on you know the publicly accessible address but that's probably a load balancer or some sort of proxy in 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 a lot of cases that stuff is starting to change a little bit too I mean that that has to stay somewhat static because you need to get to it but yeah those those records do dynamically change as well because at the end of the day, like if you're dealing with containers, like who cares what the address is? I just need to know how to get to the container that's running. Yeah. You have services like console. So uh, console, C-O-N-S-U-L, uh, is a service discovery system. And when a container comes online, it registers with console and says, hey, I'm here. Here's my address. Here's my information. This is what I do. And anybody looking for me look for, you know, is going to look for this thing. So if you're if you're a console aware application and you're looking for the caching server, you're going to go to console and say like, Hey, I need a caching server. And it has to meet this criteria and console says, Oh yeah, they, they, this is the address. Here you go. And, and that is a, it may not necessarily be a direct DNS uh, replacement per se, but as a form of DNS, in a lot of cases, console is used as a DNS server because you can you can query it with the DNS protocol and get answers based on what you're looking for. But in other instances, it has morphed it into another sort of I mean, it's more proprietary, I think, because it's it's just that one application, but. It has morphed it into an alternative DNS where you say, hey, I want to get to this cache, like, where is it? And it just says, like, it's over here. Here's the address. And it's not using the 
uh, RFC approved DNS protocol. It's using some, you know, something that they built internally. Right. Which is still essentially a name resolution service, but it's not. Right. It's not DNS as we know it. Right. Uh, Zookeeper is another example of this. And, and there's more. There's there's a lot of these out there. Um, and as we move to a much more dynamic type environment where things are changing constantly, you're going to see this a lot more. Um, you know, I want to get to Amazon. I don't, you know, at the end of the day, I couldn't care less what the address is. Just tell me how to get there. Exactly. And whatever mechanism I need to get there is great. So we may see DNS move away uh, entirely inside the net, the larger networks and only be used for the outside world. You know, I mean, it's hard to say what, what things are going to look like, you know, five years from now. Hell, it's hard to say what things are going to look like next year. Yep. Things are changing pretty quickly. Yep. All right. Well, I think that about covers it. We've gone, about, gone on about DNS for about an hour at this point. They're making this a nice, uh, let's see, two-hour show. <laughs> well, it's not normal because why? Yeah, right, exactly. We usually go long. Uh, and uh, my Jeep doesn't use struts, by the way. Your DNS doesn't use struts. I said struts. my Jeep doesn't use struts. That was the Are example you? you used before. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well. <laughs> uh, jeeps they're these things with four wheels that drive places and can climb rocks i yep. don't know yep so uh if you have questions about dns uh send them in obviously we'll we we have quite a bit of information unless it's about dns sec uh if <laughs> if you have dns sec questions send them in i know people I'll there we get go you. there we go we can get you the right people uh, and I'll do I'll do even one better. I will give you the official answer from people who know about DNSSEC, and I will give you the snarky answer from me. That's 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 what people come to Iron Sysadmin for. <laughs> <laughs> the snarky, pessimistic Jason answer. <laughs> I try. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thanks for bearing with us on this long show tonight. Uh, we've had a good time giving it to you, and we hope uh, you people have enjoyed hearing it. Um, if you, uh, if you want to catch us live, if you're not watching us live tonight and you're listening to this audio after the fact, or even watching the video after the fact, uh, we're now recording on Thursdays instead of Wednesdays. We've had a few conflicts, uh, partially because Jason took a new job that, uh, takes away his Wednesday evenings, um, which is fine. So we're doing Thursdays. We're doing the second and fourth Thursday of the month now, which I'm going to have to update in the show notes. I see it still says Wednesday. Change that right now so that when I publish this, it'll say Thursday. Um, right. So same time as usual, around 7 p.m. Eastern. Um, but yes, Thursday now instead of Wednesday. Second and fourth Thursday of every month. Uh, you can find us on YouTube, youtube.com slash Podcast. Uh, you can also join our Slack workspace if you are interested in chatting with us or with any of our other listeners. It's It's been a great place to get feedback from folks and get some information uh, even from the folks at the Admin Admin Podcast. Um, Hi, guys. I believe two of them are, are members of our Slack, which is pretty cool. It means we get to collaborate a little bit with our friends from across the pond. Uh, so that's fun. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Iron Sysadmin. I think we're the only people using that name. Who else would want it, right? Uh, and you can subscribe to us wherever you normally find podcasts. I know for certain we're on uh, Google Play and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and 
I mean, I have found us in lots of places where I didn't know we were we existed, but we're there anyway. And last but not least, if you would like to support this show monetarily, you can do so via Patreon. Patreon.com slash IronSysAdmin. And with that, I think we're going to call it a night. I have been your host t- tonight, along with Jason. You can find me on Twitter, at Gangriff. Um, Jason, I know you probably won't spell it, but go ahead, give them your Twitter handle. Look, I, um, you know, my Twitter handle shows up on the, uh, the the stream these days, I guess. Not anymore. It just says X well, to the P. It did. It did previously. And if you missed it, that's your problem. Ah. So, the, uh, so I'm on I'm on uh, Twitter at Xenophage. Uh, I have a blog at blog.gotshell.com. Uh, you can come and make fun of my latest blog entry, which is wrong, and I have to correct. Ah, uh, that's always fun. At least you can admit when you're wrong. Hey, you know, I. I, I, have- I did a thing and and it was wrong. So I have a I have a couple of interesting posts that are going to be going up on Red Hat's enable sysadmin, um, whatever aggregation, um, RedHat.com/slash sysadmin I think is the URL where you can find these things. I'll tweet about them once they're published. Um, I'm about to write an interesting article about uh, geeking outside of the office, which basically is going to correlate hobbies outside of technology with how they keep you sane as a sysadmin, which is a topic we've talked about here in the past. How do you know it's interesting if you haven't written it yet? Because it's going to be interesting because I write awesome stuff. Right? You're supposed to go, yeah, your stuff is great. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, there must have been some latency there. A little That's bit what it is. You can blame yeah. Awesome. Zoom was too busy installing uh, uh, remote access Trojans in your Apple machine, and that it, it's it slowed down your your response, right? Yeah, but it popped <laughs> up a notice that it was installing a remote access Trojan while it was doing it, <laughs> and then the webcam came on, and all of a sudden I was able to accept that process. Uh, you know, nice. So anyway, folks, we're going to call it a night. Thank you for watching and or listening, and we will catch you again in two weeks. See you then. Not all.